Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Daniel R. George will join us to discuss American dementia. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. the Grox Science Show. Well, Alzheimer's disease. Are the current approaches to dealing with it satisfactory? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Daniel R. George. Dr. George is a medical anthropologist and an associate professor in the Department of Humanities in the Department of Public Health Sciences at Penn State College of Medicine. Together with his co-author, Peter J. Whitehouse, has penned the new book, American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. Dr. George, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me, Charles. I appreciate it. Well, a pressing issue in today's society. Yeah, listeners will probably have heard this summer's approval of uh, aducanumab, which is the latest drug that has been thrown at Alzheimer's disease amidst much controversy. But basically, the book emerged in 2016 in November of all months. We had obviously a big election that month in the United States. But there are also two things in the Alzheimer's world that happened. One, a drug called solanuzumab, which was another anti-amyloid drug, just like aducanumab, the drug that was just approved. It failed in its phase three trials. However, that same month, There was a study out in the Journal of the American Medical Association showing falling rates of dementia in the United States. And that's a finding that's been observed in five other countries as well. And so there was this paradox of the biotechnology has not delivered drugs that are significantly modifying this disease process. However, dementia rates seem to be falling in the U.S. and Western European countries. And from that paradox emerged this book, basically. The cure for Alzheimer's may be misguided in how it's phrased and how it's pointed. Is this just the wrong approach? Yeah, I think your question gets to the heart of it. And in terms of how we actually identify and classify this illness, it's very complicated. So what our argument is, and which most experts in the field will agree with, is that Alzheimer's is not a specific discrete disease. It's not the result of a single pathogen, but rather a heterogeneous syndrome that is age-related. We used to call it senility for most of human history, but it's only been kind of repackaged as a discrete disease since the 1970s. And then it entered this model that you're uh, referencing, which is, okay, well, we just need a little bit more time and funding. And if we throw enough money into markets and biotechnology, out of that will emerge a cure. But what we're observing is that because this condition is such a syndromal manifestation, a cluster of diseases, which should probably better be called Alzheimer's diseases or Alzheimer's syndrome than Alzheimer's disease, it's very resistant to single mechanism approaches like anti-amyloid drugs such as uh, aducanumab. And so you're starting to hear people now talk about cocktails of drugs that will be needed to treat Alzheimer's, which reference and sort of concedes the point that what we're dealing with is a multitude of uh, uh, disease processes in the brain. And at that point, you have to ask, well, are we really trying to cure aging? 
Just our perception of these things changes, the drive to want to cure everything that occurs, even aging? Yeah, I think that is the drive. And, you know, in the process of that with something like Alzheimer's, we've taken this one part of the syndrome, beta amyloid, which is this protein that's in most of our brains. I mean, 40% of normally aged people who don't have dementia have amyloid in their brains. And so it's a, it's a very common part of brain metabolism. It's, a, you know, involved in uh, cell and synapse growth. We see it with stress and immune responses. But what we've done is basically assign toxicity to this protein. And all these drugs have very elegantly removed it or preempted its its formation in the brain, but that has not correlated with clinical benefit. And so it's, it's a matter of throwing all of our billions of dollars of resources and time, you know, tens of thousands of scientists have worked on this. And, you know, what we've seen is 100% fail rate in drugs and billions of dollars spent trying to remove amyloid. So we're starting to get to the point where we're asking questions about the wisdom of continuing these approaches, but the aducanumab situation this summer was a bit of a setback. Syndromically healthy individuals might have quite a bit of this amyloid in their brain. So is it really the causative? That's right. And some people even think that amyloid is part of the brain's self-repair response. And so if you remove it, are you actually damaging the brain or impeding it from uh, a healing process? And in fact, in the aducanumab studies that I've referenced, I've seen a loss of brain volume for the high dosage groups. So if you're pulling amyloid out of the brain and it is part of a healing process, perhaps we're harming people. And that's why we're not seeing any clinical benefit along with these drugs. As you mentioned earlier, I mean, the striking thing is that we are seeing declines of dementia. What may account for that? Yeah, that paradox is so fascinating. So these studies that have been done in the U.S., Canada, France, Sweden, the Netherlands, and the U.K. have all shown either stable or falling rates of dementia for people who were over age 70 last decade. And so what these studies have zeroed in on is two specific patterns in those different cultural contexts, one being better treatment of vascular disease throughout the 20th century, and the second being increased formal years of education. And that doesn't just happen in a vacuum, right? This is sort of a function of post-World War, post-Depression era democracies that were really, really suffering after those traumas. And governments in those countries saw fit to make investments for instance, national health care systems emerged in all of those countries other than the U.S., of course, although we do have Medicare, Medicaid. Those helped better control risk factors like hypertension and high cholesterol and diabetes. And we know that there's you know, significant risk for uh, dementia increased by vascular disease. So providing people kind of cradle to the grave access to clinical care was a, a, a very helpful input. Smoking cessation programs were really effective in the United States, especially. We had 44% of people smoking in the late 60s. That's down to about 14% today as a result of public health campaigns. We were one of the first countries to de-lead gasoline under the EPA and the, the Clean Air Act in the 1970s. Lead is not only a neurotoxin, it's also a major risk factor for heart disease and thus, you know, contributing to our risk for dementia. And then lastly, on the education side in the U.S. and in other countries, governments invested greatly in veterans who were coming back from World War II. So in the U.S., we had the GI Bill that provided education to 10 million veterans of that era, people who are now turning, you know, the last decade turned 70s and 80s. And there's a hypothesis called the cognitive reserve hypothesis, which says that the more education you get, the more you challenge your brain over your lifespan, 
the more resilient you are to age-related pathologies, the syndrome of Alzheimer's disease. And so we're really seeing in this data, this paradoxical data, the fruits of making collective investments at the population level. We have sort of general improvements in health, and so therefore general improvements in brain health as well. That's exactly right. And just to go back to the syndromal nature of Alzheimer's disease, let me just add to that. We don't just see plaques and tangles, the amyloid plaques and tangles with Alzheimer's. We all, most dementias are mixed dementias. In other words, they have small strokes in the brain or Lewy body disease or white matter disease. But vascular dementia is a major risk factor for developing Alzheimer's, quote unquote, Alzheimer's disease. And so if you look upstream, keeping the heart healthy, keeping the vascular system healthy across populations is a, a really beneficial investment. The heart spends 20% of its output pumping oxygen and nutrients to the brain. So as you say, kind of healthy, healthy heart, healthy head, healthy person. So yeah, we do need to think more holistically when we talk about treating Alzheimer's and not just throwing single drug approaches at it. So how did we get almost siloed in a way into focusing on a particular molecule to target what's going on here? Yeah, great question. I think, you know, those of us who are who are in the sciences know intuitively that science doesn't just happen in a vacuum either. It's always embedded in a political economy and there are always cultural, political, economic and other factors that shape the way we produce data, interpret data and the way resources flow. And that's really happened in Alzheimer's disease, which was an obscure condition through most of the 20th century after it was first documented by Alois Alzheimer in the early 20th century. But in the 1970s, you had the National Institute on Aging emerge, and they basically made Alzheimer's disease a household name because they needed to promote their organization and get funding uh, relative to the other diseases that, that get funded in, in the government. And so there was an attempt to take this sort of syndromal condition and package it as one thing, as one dread disease that could be amenable to a pharmaceutical solution. And of course, in the 70s, we also had this proliferation of marketization and biotechnology, and we'd just been to the moon, so there was a real positive belief that we, a little bit more time and funding, we could produce a cure. And so, as I mentioned at the outset, we've thrown billions of dollars into this drug development approach, and we don't really have much to show for it quite a lot of funding, even more so now flowing into uh, National Institutes of Aging, particularly targeted at Alzheimer's disease. The hope was that that would widen or broaden the scope of investigations into different conditions. Has that occurred? No, and that's a major problem. There's really been a sort of ossification, if I, if I can use that term, a sort of hardening of the categories with Alzheimer's disease, where we just wrote an article in Scientific American titled Alzheimer's Inc. And there's an industrial complex in the Alzheimer's field whereby you sort of have to endorse the amyloid cascade hypothesis if you want to get funded. Careers are built on amyloid. Organizations really only fund people who are building upon that platform for drug development. And so, as you say, that has led to kind of stagnation in terms of investing in other hypotheses, other ideas. There's this really fascinating competition between the Baptists, the people that believe beta amyloid protein is causative, and the Taoists, people who think that the Tao tangles that form intracellularly in neurons are driving this disease process. Uh, and so there's there's been a sort of political battle between those camps, but the lion's share of resources have gone to the Baptists and to amyloid. And we're really seeing the end result of that with aducanumab 
which even though it didn't show clinical efficacy, did succeed in reducing amyloid in people's brains. So it's a drug that treats amyloid, if not helping people clinically. And so we're sort of going around and around this eternal recurrence failed amyloid approaches. It's quite frustrating. Problems are replete. What do you think are the solutions then? Yeah, I think breaking out of the binds of the amyloid cascade hypothesis is going to be absolutely essential. But if we think back to the paradoxical data that we've, we've, we've discussed, the lesson there is that making common sense population health investments are going to redound to the benefit of people's brain health. And so, you know, we're in a country where 80 million people are either on or underinsured. Those are people who are not getting cradle to grave care for vascular risk factors. We have uh, six in 10 Americans living with a chronic disease. So obviously providing true national health care in this country would make a large dent. In the last decade or so, we've also had a lot of discussion about making college free and having free vocational training school and adult education opportunities. And clearly that represents an investment that wouldn't just be good in the present moment, but would give increasing numbers of people access to higher education and thus cognitive reserve that we know is protective. And then lastly, I'll, I'll mention deleted gasoline in the 70s, but Today, we're dealing with an equal or greater lead crisis in our drinking water, and that's due largely to failures in our uh, regulatory system and aging piping infrastructure that just hasn't been dealt with over the last few decades. Flint, Michigan, obviously, has been in the news quite a bit in the last five, six years for their crisis, but I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, originally, and you know our, our lead levels are actually higher in Cleveland than they are in Flint. And if you go to any major city in the country, there's lead in the water. And of course, no level of lead is safe, especially for children. And so addressing that public health crisis will be essential to brain health for the future. Penelope of different uh, environmental factors, societal factors contribute to dementia development, that another benefit to attacking these different uh, societal ills is that we can also help prevent the rise of dementia. Yeah, I think that's a good way of framing it. The, the dementia prevention is a sort of epiphenomenon that emerges from these other sort of primary uh, treating acute problems within the culture. If you had told somebody in the 40s that their 1940s, that their investments would lead to downstream reductions in dementia, uh, you know, 70 years later, I mean, that would not have been a, an effective lever for them to make that argument uh, to fund those things. So you may have to frame it differently in the, in the moment. And of course, we've had people like Bernie Sanders championing healthcare and education, higher education, um, you know, for very specific reasons in the culture over the last several years. But clearly, if we're talking about brain health at the population level, we know that there will be downstream benefits to those sorts of policies. As you're putting the book together, was there anything particularly surprising to you? Yeah, well, one, one area that I've stumbled on in recent years that may be of interest to your listenership is places like Johns Hopkins. They are starting to experiment with compounds, the classical psychedelics, uh, with people with mild cognitive impairment. This is, to me, a fascinating approach. I, I think we need to be skeptical of it, and we need to wait for the data to come in and not rely on single compounds making a major effect on the illness, of course. However, it's an interesting example of thinking outside the amyloid box and using these approaches that have been drawn upon by human communities for tens of thousands of years for benefit. And, you know, we think about long-term care one of five patients living in assisted living is on an antipsychotic. We're having a real issue with that. They're, they increase risk of mortality and falls and a whole slew of bad things. And so 
in as much as we can use compounds like psychedelics to potentially improve behaviors and agitation, maybe even accentuate people's enjoyment of uh, music and art and interaction with others and exposure to nature and green spaces. I think that's a really fascinating emerging area in dementia care that nobody is really talking about right now, but places like Johns Hopkins is starting to do um, preliminary studies on this. So that's one thing that I stumbled on over the course of writing this book that I think is really cool. Probably good for the children of the 70s, 60s, 70s. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The Grateful Dead and the Beatles and psychedelics. Yeah, they'll be all good. (laughs) Maybe to close, do you have any final words regarding your book, American Dementia, where we're at and where we should be going? Yeah, we, uh, we, my co-author Peter Whitehouse and I um, do have a website, uh, AmericanDementia.com. People can find us there. We also have a Facebook page uh, based on the title of our first book, The Myth of Alzheimer's. And it just encourage people to reach out to us uh, in, in those two, on those two platforms. We'd, we're always happy to interact with people, take questions, and we're open to collaborations people might want. You know, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're very open folks and really appreciate the chance to have a, an opportunity to talk on your program, Charles. Thank you. We were just talking with Dr. Daniel R. George, together with Peter J. Whitehouse. They have penned the new book, American Dementia, Brain Health in an Unhealthy Society. Dr. George, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. That was a pleasure. Thank you, Charles. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.